The text this morning will be from Zechariah chapter 3. Yes, there is a book of the Bible called Zechariah. Just to help you, it's over there by Haggai. Okay. Thank God for those electronic Bibles because now you can just type it in, but, but do it right or you'll end up in Zephaniah. Let me tell you what's about to happen here because uh, we're, we're entering into a, a strange world some 500 years before Christ. That puts us 2,500 some years back. Uh, by the way, as long as I've got numbers uh, rotating in my head, on the genes I've been told that we're somewhere stuck in the 17th century that we've got 1,680 or something like that. So we'll keep counting, and you keep giving, and we'll see where we end up. Um, but now roll it back 2,500 years ago, and, and Zechariah, it's a lot like Revelation where he has visions, and the angel of the Lord is showing him visions of what's going on in heaven. And he's being brought into what's called the Council of El. El being the name for God. He's in the divine throne room. He's in the heavenly court. And he's, he's observing a proceeding that's about to take place in God's throne room. And this is about a hundred years, a little less, after the Babylonian exile. And the heir to the high priesthood in Jerusalem is there. He's being brought before God. And his advocate is the angel of the Lord. But... First, he has to face the adversary, the accuser. And here's the way the vision is reported to us. Zechariah says, The angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, that is Satan, was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Joshua. And the Lord said to the accuser, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man, Joshua, is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, He said, see, I've taken away your sins, and now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. Zechariah says, then I said, they should also place a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean priestly turban on his head, and they dressed him in the new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. And then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua, and he said, this is... This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among these others standing here. Listen to me, O Joshua, high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I'm going to bring you my servant, known as the branch. Now look at the jewel I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven facets, and I'll engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And I'll remove the sins of this land 
in a single day. And on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. There's a lot of imagery here that we can, I'll be honest, we can feel pretty removed from it. It sounds like biblical stuff, but we're not sure how it relates to us. First of all, let's take the, you know, let's go with Zechariah and understand that he has been brought into the divine council. And in, and in the ancient world, uh, and you saw this in many cultures, there was this idea that the, that, the, that the gods would meet together and that they would assemble in heaven and rulings would be made that had to do with the earth, that what goes on in heaven affects what goes on in earth. But there's something unexpected that happens in this vision, and it, we might not have caught it at first, but I hope that by the time we're finished today, you're going to catch it. You're going to see it. Zechariah is there at this divine council, and the issue before the court involves ultimately the restoration of all Jerusalem and Israel, uh, God's plan to save all of the world, and to do that, he had to have a people who would represent to all the nations on earth what God's vision is for all of creation. But to do that with those people, he needed a priesthood, and that priesthood would, would mediate God's grace and God's forgiveness to the people. And keep them in line with God and His ways. But what do you do when that priesthood comes apart? What do you do when that priesthood rejects God? What do you do when that priesthood becomes so arrogant and so corrupt that they think that they're doing God's will when they're really doing their own bidding? They're really following their own way. God, rather than seeing losing everything, allows this priesthood in Jerusalem, this, this government in Jerusalem, the king even. He allows them to suffer the consequences of their rebellion and their sin. And the way that takes place in history is that a mighty nation named Babylon rushes in, invades Judah, and takes them into captivity. The temple in Jerusalem, God's address on earth, is destroyed. And that creates a crisis of faith. How do these invaders with their pagan gods who do not have the might of God, of Yahweh, how do they have the ability to tear down God's house on earth? And the message from the prophets over and over again is God allows it. God was not there. God walked away from Judah because they had rejected him. And what happens in history is that Joshua, the high priest, who's in this meeting in the heavenly council, his grandfather, who was the last high priest to serve in that temple, Sariah, he's taken captive by the general of the Babylonian army, taken to Babylon, and is executed. God's highest representative on earth, other than the king, is executed by a foreign king. And then Joshua's father, Jehozadak, he remains a captive. There's no temple worship going on during these 70 years. There's no representation of God's people on earth during these 70 years. And it's all because of their 
arrogance and their stubbornness and their refusal to obey God, their insistence that they knew better and they would trust in other powers, they would trust in other gods, they would trust in allegiances with other nations, and they would trust in their own ability and their own military rather than trust in the God who had given them everything. Don't you know that that time of exile was very dark, not only for the people, but also for all of the earth? There is no representation of God and his temple on earth during that time. It's the judgment of God. And when people go by Jerusalem, the holy city, when they go by the temple, they see it in ruins and they say, God rejected these people. They're remembered for their sinfulness. They're remembered for their rebellion. A generation, 70 years, an entire generation, lives through. And some of them, like Joshua the high priest, are born into the reality of condemnation. They're born into the reality of rejection. Imagine that you're Joshua the high priest. And you know that your father is from that lineage, and your grandfather was the last high priest to serve there, and you have never seen the temple with your own eyes because Joshua is born and raised in exile. Now, if there's any hope of returning Israel, you can rebuild all the structures you want, but where are you going to get your high priest? Can it be Joshua? Almost a century after the exile... Here's the heir to the high priesthood. But is he worthy? He's wearing filthy garments in the vision. That represents more than just he's got a bad set of clothes. That represents more than the fact that he's in exile. It represents sinfulness. It means that he's unclean on the outside, and because of the sins of his father, he has inherited the consequences of their rebellion before God. The priesthood was rejected. They were unqualified to serve. And the priest represents the people before God. Jerusalem and Israel and Judah were to be a light to all nations, and their light had gone out. And now, again, we live on this side of the story, but during those 70 years, the conclusion is it's over. The experiment is over. But God's still up to something. God's still doing something. And his angel, his spokesperson, the head of the divine council, he stands before the Lord on behalf of Joshua. God's restoration agenda never ends. He's brought Joshua before the Lord. He's saying, we've got someone who is the heir of the last high priest. He could restore the priesthood. And then we could bring the branch, as in the branch of Jesse, as in the heir of the, the, the monarchy. We could get a priest. We could get a king. We could rebuild the temple. We could start it all over again. The angel of the Lord is representing God's agenda to save all the earth, to restore what had been destroyed. Typically, the angel of the Lord speaks for God in matters of judgment. He delivers God's words of judgment, God's messages. And to get through this divine counsel, though, there's one other officer in the court that they have to go through. 
The angel of the Lord has to hear the arguments from the accuser. Now, you, you probably picked up on that. The accuser. Satan. And usually when we think of Satan, we think of a demonic figure. He's not played off as a demonic figure here. This is a lot like the image of Satan that you're going to see in the first two chapters of Job. This is far more than a prosecutor, though. This is an adversary. And if you break down that word Satan, Satan, we, we, we tend to think of it as a name. We tend to think of it as the name of a demon. But it's, it's, it's based on a word. It ba- it's based on a word that means the accuser. The Satan is the accuser. He's the one who accuses. He's the one who brings up charges against people. He's the one who names the accusations against us. He's the one who names the sin and the rebellion and labels us with that sin and that rebellion. He labels us with all of the things that we've ever done, both good or bad. And by the way, this this official in um, in the ancient Near East, this is a common figure, by the way, You're going to see him not only in the Bible, but you're going to see him in history. That there in the court of the emperors of of Persia, for example, there would be a figure who would be called Satan, the accuser. And he's like a spy. It's like the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, and, and prosecutors everywhere just rolled up into one individual. He can bring up charges. He can say, this is what I've seen. And... Technically, he could bring up good stuff and say, here are the good things that can be said about this person. Sort of like the media, you know? They can tell you all sorts of wonderful things about people, but people aren't going to watch that now, are they? Because we worry about the bad stuff that's been done, and we want to know that bad stuff so that we don't get caught off guard. And this is what the accuser does before the emperor. He's looking out for the emperor. He's looking out for the the, the highest official in all the land. This man represents a threat to your government. This man represents a threat to your ways. The accuser will know the law very, very well. And in the divine council, the adversary, the opponent, the Satan, the accuser, he appears in just such a manner to say to God, to Yahweh. That's how he's referred to in Zechariah with his divine name. He is, he is, he's telling Yahweh in the council of God, the priesthood was rejected. That was your judgment, God. You made that decision. Show no weakness. Let everybody know that your decision was final. Let everybody know that your decision was just. And guess what? All of that is true. I know we've been told that Satan is a liar. And yet he has this capacity to also tell certain truths. It's all in the way that it's told. According to the accuser, the destruction of Jerusalem should be just like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It should be a smoking crater that says to everyone, if you defy God's law, this is what happens to you. And isn't it interesting that we don't tend to think of Jerusalem in the same way we think of Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, as soon as we hear about the destruction of Jerusalem, we think, well, yeah, they need a 70-year time out, and then they'll come back. You know, they've just been a little cranky, but they need to grow up, and God will get them back on track. But Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, the things that are going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, 
smash them, bulldoze them, burn them to the ground, nuke them, and let everyone see that's what happens when you mess with God. The accuser's saying the same thing. Don't rebuild the temple. You rejected it. And like those emperors in the ancient Near East, when an emperor made a decision, it was final. Even that emperor could not overturn his decisions because that was the word of the emperor. Joshua, the priesthood, they are unqualified, they are corrupt. They cannot serve. So the accuser's case is solid. I know that's implied in Zechariah 3. In fact, we don't even get into what the accuser says. But anyone who knows the story knows that as soon as the accuser steps up to bring charges to the angel of the Lord against Joshua, we know what he's going to say. And the people who are listening to Zechariah's vision know what he's going to say. You know why they know it? Because they've lived it. Because they are living it. They know it. Just as if I talk to you about the sins that you're very ashamed of. The sins that you, that, that you have been carrying around forever. I don't have to tell you. You know them. People all the time in sermons, they want me to name sins. Name some sins. Tell people. You know, I have to admit to you, it's, there's been very few times that I've preached a sermon and somebody just wakes up. I didn't even know that was a sin. Oh, well, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'll take care of it. People know. People know. I understand there's some exceptions to that. I get that. But here, the people know what the accuser is going to say. They already know it. Why? Because they've been living it for 70 years. And this is where the interesting thing happens. The very interesting thing. The Lord. Not the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the messenger of Yahweh. In that divine council, Yahweh, who is typically silent, who would be in the place of the king or the place of the judge, who wouldn't even deliver his judgment directly, but would deliver it through his angel, the Lord himself speaks up. And not only does he speak, he rebukes. i got to stop right there. Because that word rebuke, when's the last time you've used that word outside of a church Bible context? Rebuke? I mean, again, that, that word gets kind of um, elevated and dignified, you know. The, um, you know, I, we, we hear it in Scripture, you know, it's very King James. I rebuke you. That word seems to, it comes with settings. It comes with companion words like thee and thou and ye. I rebuke, you don't rebuke you, you rebuke thee. I rebuke thee, I rebuke ye. That word just fits with that kind of stuff. You look it up in the dictionary in English and it means reprimand. (laughs) You know, reprimand sounds, and again, that's kind of, you know, I've been reprimanded, you know. Um, Reprimanding is not what you do when you get punished by, by, by people who scare you. Reprimand, Reprimand sounds like a punishment from some gentleman with a monocle and a top hat. You know, he reprimands you. Uh, and you, re- you get reproved. Uh, how did you get proved in the first place? I want to tell you what this word rebuke means in the original language. It has not only the meaning, but it has the way it's working in grammar. And I don't want to bore you with all of that. But the way it's working, it's saying that Yahweh himself gets up and says to the accuser, I accuse you. You can shut up. And you can sit down, accuser. That's the force of the word. 
it operates in such a way that it's not just what is said, but it's the way it's said. He will not even allow the accuser to speak, but instead says that this man is a branch snatched from the fire. What does he mean by that? He means this is redemption. We've saved him from destruction because I'm going to do something with him. God refuses to let the accuser get a word of accusation in here and instead accuses the accuser. Do we understand what this means? Oh, I've taken you through all this history. And if all you leave here today with is a history lesson, well, that's interesting. But do you see what is happening? Because this tells us something about the character of God. This tells us something about the love of Yahweh. Because you and I have the voice of the accuser constantly ringing in our ears. The accuser is constantly telling us all of the reasons why we are disqualified from God's salvation. And the sad news, there's good news, there's also sad news. The sad news is that for many of us, that's where it stops. We are constantly condemning ourselves. We are constantly apologizing to others. Or we feel the weight of condemnation from others. We feel the weight of condemnation from, from, from the church even. And here's the thing I want you to know. Sometimes it's not the church condemning you. Sometimes it's in your own thoughts. It's in your own heart. And it is the voice of the accuser. We allow ourselves to be defined by our guilt. Let me be very clear. Guilt plays an important part in redemption. Because when we feel guilt, when we know guilt, when we know shame, we know that there is something that doesn't fit into what God's plan is. Through the exile, God's people re learned who they were supposed to be. They learned again what God's vision was for them. They thought they were God's people if they had the land, if they had a temple, if they had a priest, if they had a king. They learn all over again that what made them God's people was His choice, His love, His definition of them. And but sometimes, But if you stop at guilt and it never goes any further than that, then guilt becomes a false god. Guilt becomes the work of the accuser to name us. To name us as constantly guilty before God. And then we experience that condemnation. Last week we brought up Paul's statement when he said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that's not just Candyland, by the way. Oh, everybody gets to Candyland at the end and they all win and nobody loses. That's not it. He's saying there's no condemnation because God is defining you through Jesus Christ. Did you notice in Zechariah 3 how many times he said, Joshua, listen to this. The one who's telling you this is the Lord of heaven's armies. Well, of course, I noticed that because that's a very biblical thing. We've got songs about that, right, preacher? You know, the Lord of hosts. Why would he say the Lord of heaven's armies? Why? Because he's emphasizing that there is no other power that can define us. 
There's no other power that can step in. Babylon cannot step in and say, you are condemned. We rule over you. Persia cannot come in and condemn them and say, we rule over you. God's saying, I have the authority and I have the power to back it up. So when you know who you are in God and someone says, you and what army? Now you know the answer. When Joshua says, God has called me to be the high priest. To, to, to begin again his work of restoring the world. If people said, you and what army? He knows what army. And when the accuser comes in subtly to speak against us, you know what army opposes him. The adversary, the accuser is the adversary, the opponent. This opponent finds himself lined up against the Lord of heaven's army. Now my question to you in realizing this, and if you believe this is true and you believe God's word, then why do we let any other voice or accusation define us? If God can rebuke the accuser, if he can accuse the accuser, why do we let the accuser continue to have power over us? If God can can stand as the Lord of heaven's armies, why do we let any other power define who we are? Because when we do that, and here's the real danger in that, the danger is not just that that's tragic, the danger is we never learn what God wants to do with us. God is greater than accusation. The apostle John writes in 1 John, he says that when our own hearts condemn us, has that ever happened to you? Has your own heart condemned you? You may even think others are condemning you, but has your own heart condemned you? When our hearts condemn us, guess what? There's one greater than our hearts, and that's God. He has authority even over our own accusation or the work of the opponent. And when we do not allow God to speak to us who we are, then we'll never know his purpose. Did you notice in Zechariah 3 what... what, What God wants to talk about, what the angel of the Lord wants to talk about, is not what the accuser has to say. In fact, they shut him down. We've heard enough from you. We've heard all about this. We've been over this over and over again. We're not going to have this conversation anymore. From this point on, we're going to make a new high priest. We're going to give him the the vestments of a high priest. We're going to dress him up in the uniform of a high priest so that we can begin this work of redemption. Zechariah even gets in on it. I think he ought to have a priest hat too. Give him a priest hat. That's a good idea. In other words, he wants everybody to know that he's got the symbol of office. Why? Because we need that priesthood so that we can get back on God's agenda to save the world for his glory. When you were baptized into Christ, you know, we always, my sins were forgiven. That's right. Don't stop there. Your sins are put away. They're forgiven. They're washed away so that you can walk in newness of life. So that you can have new purpose. God just doesn't want you to sit on the sidelines and stay uninjured. Don't get your new clothes dirty until he comes back. He wants you to get in the game. He's got a purpose for you. Those who have been saved then, and by the way, I know even as we're saying this, my concern is that some of us are still disqualifying ourselves. But the things I've done, I mean, I could never do what you do. Well, as you all all very well know, I have to be perfect to do this job, you know. 
I mean, you know, that's how it's the only way you get here, and I guess you've got to be perfect too. Here's the thing I want you to understand. God has not had much success with sinless people. And that might be because, number one, anybody who thinks that they're sinless is suffering from one of the greatest sins of ever, and that's self-righteousness. And the other reason might be that there's no such thing as sinless people. But God does amazing things through people who know how they have offended God, who know how they have sinned, and yet they also allow God to redeem them. Think about what God can do with Joshua, a high priest, who was born in exile, who never saw the temple, who's going to have to learn all over again what that temple's all about. Isn't that also what the people are going through? You, you may be disqualifying yourself today saying, yeah, but what I've been through, I mean, you know, it's just I'll always be broken. I'll, I'll, always, I'll always be wounded. Maybe you will, but don't you think that God can use that? That's what redemption is all about. Redemption is new calling. It's a new reason to do what you do. You know, when you, when you list the, 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 the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every time I think of those three, my favorite is Jacob. You know why? Because he's the one, it's like that old Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things just doesn't belong. It's supposed to be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's what it's supposed to be. But Jacob, because he's a bit of a con artist, finagles his way in. And God finally wrestles him down into the mud. That's right. The Lord himself comes down from heaven, puts him in a full Nelson, gets him down in the mud, stuffing his face in it. Read Genesis. It's there. He's saying, you're not Jacob. You're not the con artist. You're going to be a patriarch whether you want to or not. He goes, no. He finally gets so upset, he, he fights back, but his hip gets busted in the process. He turns the tables on God. Imagine that. And he says, you're going to give me a blessing. He says, I'll give you a blessing. Your blessing's going to be a new name. And that name will be Israel. Which means you've struggled with God, you've struggled with man, and you have prevailed. In other words, you're not letting the old name, you're not letting the old sins define you anymore. God is saying, I will define you. I will give you purpose. Now, from that point ever after, Jacob always walked with a limp. That wasn't taken away. But he had a new name, and he had a new purpose. And centuries later, his descendant, Joshua, the high priest, wounded, filthy, born in exile, outcast, the, the Lord himself has stood between him and the accuser and said, no more. This is my high priest. Don't you know that because we have a high priest in Jesus Christ, you are defended all the more? And that when Jesus Christ rebukes or tells the accuser to sit down and shut up, he wants you to stop listening to the accuser as well. Now when we stand and sing this song, the invitation of Jesus Christ is to be his person. How will you serve him? How can we serve him? By the way, it's also possible for a church 
to condemn itself, to say we're always this or we're always that. We as a collective people may need to stop listening to the accuser and the accusations and start listening to God and believing in Him when He gives us His vision of what could be. I'm just asking you to believe it. God has gotten up off of His throne to tell us the truth. Why don't we respond? Let's stand, let's sing this song. If you want to be baptized or you need prayers, let us know this morning.